Hey, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. This week, we went in on COVID-19 with ABC Science health reporter Olivia Willis. We talked about immunity, washing your vegetables, vaccines, the contagiousness, does the virus thrive in summer or winter, does it live on receipt paper, is the coronavirus linked to 5G? Spoiler alert, no. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Carl, you are currently coming at us from your studio bunker. That's right, the science bunker in the bra. And so we've, Olivia, like um, Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor, spends so much time reading up on stuff. They know so much more than I do simply because they spend more time in it. And by the way, this is a lesson. You learn stuff more from reading the literature than by seeing what Darren on Facebook says. So big it up for Olivia and her good colleagues. Welcome, Dr. Olivia. Lovely to have you. Thank you, Dr. Carl. Olivia, what are some of the articles that you've put out through ABC Science about coronavirus that you think have had the most hits or that people have been the most interested in or intrigued about? Oh, look, there's been there's been a bunch of them. I think one that people were particularly interested in was um, looking at the difference between whether you have a cold or coronavirus, because a lot of the kind of, when you get symptoms early on in coronavirus, a lot of them are flu-like symptoms, so things like a dry cough. Um, and there's a little bit of confusion around that and probably a little bit of panic if people are feeling unwell, they might think, all of a sudden think, oh, it's definitely coronavirus when yeah. it may well not be. Um, another one, a lot of interest there is in is in face masks and whether we need to wear them. Um, generally, for healthy people, the advice is no, um, but that advice might be is seemingly maybe changing in the US. But at the moment here, um, healthy people don't need to wear them. I definitely understand that panic. Mm-hmm. I, you know, got my period and had a headache, which is a common symptom of that. And I thought. <gasps> is this the beginnings of coronavirus? I even knowingly had a bottle of wine the other night and the next day I had a headache off the back of it. But still I went, <laughs> is it coronavirus? I'm like, no, maybe it's the entire Pinot Noir you had last it night, might be that. That yeah. could be it. That could do it. Are we ready to take some questions, Dr. Carl? What do you reckon? Bring them on. Let's get into it. So first up, we're going to go to Russellville with Mike. Dr. Mike, what's your question this morning? Yeah, hi. Um, I was... I was thinking about how uh, smells travel so far, like when you can smell a barbecue or, or food cooking and, and, and how they travel. And that got me on to thinking if smells can travel so far in the air, um, w- why can't uh, viruses travel that far? And if the, if the 1.5 person-to-person buffer zone is actually effective? Well, Olivia, me? Okay, yeah. I'll start and then you take over, Olivia. How about that? Sure. Okay, so there's an article in the um, New England Journal of Medicine called Aerosol and Surface Stability of SARS-CoV-2. And they point out that the dose needed to have a 50% chance of growing in a culture of SARS-CoV-2 is about 100 and something thousand virus particles. Whereas with a norovirus, it's just 20 and if you're talking about a smell, they're even smaller. Your nose can pick them up. So what I'm saying is that the, while a virus particle might travel through the air and land on you, if it's just one, well, it's a, maybe 100,000 short of what's needed. Yeah, look, it's it's kind of the question seems to be around this idea of airborne transmission. So this is a little bit different to droplet transmission, which is we know the main way that coronavirus spreads. So through these things called respiratory droplets, which are the little things that we excrete when we sneeze or we cough. When it comes to airborne transmission, what we're talking about there is basically the virus spreading through really tiny particles 
in the air, which remain in the air for a longer period of time and can spread over a distance. Now, that research that Dr. Carl was talking about, that showed us that under experimental conditions, COVID-19 can be turned into an aerosol, so those tiny little particles, and remain in the air for about three hours. Um, And that means that airborne transmission becomes possible. But, and it's a very big but, this was only done in lab settings, so in artificial conditions. And we're not, we haven't yet seen any evidence of the coronavirus spreading that way in the community. So that's why we have that kind of 1.52 metre distance rule because the main way is through close close contact with respiratory droplets rather than, you know, say someone who is infected is on a train, they breathe out, we get on an hour later and there's still particles in the air. That seems to be very unlikely and is not the kind of main way that the the virus is spreading at the moment. And, And maybe somebody could come up with a special stinky smell that we all spray on ourselves when we go out of the house. And if you can smell that smell, then you're too close. (laughs) Let's go now to Hendo in Brizzy. Hendo, what's your question this morning? Hi, Dr. Lucy, Dr. Carl, Dr. Olivia. How are you all today? Nailed it. Good, thanks. Wow, that's great. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I'm just wondering, they say that a good result of the spread of the virus is going to be about 20% of the population will be infected somehow. Now, there's only about 5,000, I think, that have been infected so far or known. Um, I'm just wondering if that means about four or five million people will end up getting it. Um, And that's probably going to take us a while to get to that figure. I'm just wondering, will we ever get to that stage where four or five million people will actually be infected? Look, it's a great well, question, but, you know, it's really very difficult to stay at this stage. We've got lots of different kind of mathematical models suggesting different kind of times that the virus might peak here and how many people are going to be infected, but we still don't know at this point whether A, it's going to reach that number of people and how quickly that's going to happen. Certainly that's a big part of why we're trying to slow the spread and do what we call flattening the curve because the idea is if we are going to get a significant number of people, let's try and slow out the rate at which the people get infected so that our health systems aren't overwhelmed. Carl, I don't know if you've seen any any models recently that have clearer predictions around when we might see a peak here. No, but you've touched on a very important point, Dr. Olivia, which is we need the mathematicians. And you think, what use is a mathematician? And the answer is um, in the Second World War, they shortened the Second World War from seven years to five years by busting the Enigma code. We need the mathematicians. We need all forms of scientists to be able to answer those sorts of questions. And that was such a good question you asked because we simply don't have the full answer and we need those mathematicians. Come on, stop hiding. Come out in the open. More scientists. Yes, uh, come out into the open. You are listening to Triple J. If you've got a science question this morning, 0439 757 is the text sign or give us a call, 1300 36. Let's go to Raymond in Wynnum, Queensland. Raymond, what you got? Very good morning, doctors. Um, I'm just curious with this pandemic um, striking the way it has, Is this something that just comes around roughly once every 100 years or can we expect these to happen more frequently in the future? Um, It's entirely variable. According to my mates in infectious diseases, we had a nasty one happen in Hong Kong a few years ago and this particular virus was in chickens and it infected chickens and made them sick and then it had an extra trick which was that it jumped from chickens to humans 
which is not that common, and then it had an extra, extra trick, which was that it was very nasty to humans and killed a lot of them. And apparently, in one night, the Chinese army moved into Hong Kong and killed every single chicken, and they stopped that. So these pandemics are just part of nature. We want to live, bacteria want to live, viruses want to live, no hard feelings. Um, And so we were warned by World Health Organization after the combination of the swine flu, MERS and SARS, that there was another one going to come at some stage, don't know when, it is going to come, and Singapore set up a full pandemic unit ready for it, being paid in the same way that at every airport in Australia. There's a fire truck with people. And how many fires have they been to in the last 10 years? Zero. Do we pay them money to do that? Yes, because that is part of a society where we look after each other for the future. Australia, unfortunately, did not set up a pandemic unit, as did neither 90% of the countries in the world. So will another one be coming? Sure. It's just part of the way it is. We need to be ready for it in the same way. You're always put on your seatbelt in a car, even though you haven't had a collision for the last 20 years. It is Baker Boy with Move. Dr. Carl, I could see you having a groove to that one over Skype. <laughs> I'm hanging out. I love that song to pieces. Yeah. What, what style would you call it? Like circus, surf, um, pseudo-electro? Come on, you, you're the music person. Give me a name for it. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to pass that on to Baker Boy. Cir- circus, surf, pseudo-electro. I would just call it a simple electronic hip-hop, but I like your <sighs> version. <laughs> We have got Dr. Carl taking on your science questions as per usual and Olivia Willis, who is a health reporter for ABC Science. Let's jump back in. Richard from Benalla in Victoria. Richard, you've got a question about the weather and coronavirus. Yeah, hello, doctors. Um, I was just wondering, yeah, is coronavirus more severe in uh, hot, during a hot summer or a cold winter? Really good question. It's... What we know so far is a lot of the largest outbreaks of coronavirus have tended to be in regions where the weather is cooler. So that's kind of led to a bit of speculation around whether the disease might kind of hopefully tail off in those climates with the arrival of summer. But most, a lot of the experts in this space have kind of cautioned around banking on that idea too much that the virus, you know, would die down over summer. Um, it's kind of, you know, we've only, this virus has been around really since September. It's very much, you know, early days and it's too new really to have any firm data on how the number of cases would change with the seasons. And we do know that pandemics don't often follow the same kind of seasonal patterns that we would see in kind of normal outbreaks. So Spanish flu, for example, that peaked during summer months, while a lot of our flu outbreaks tend to happen in winter. So a little bit early to say at this point. Mm, we've got a text. Wow, here. hang on, Olivia. Let me get that straight. The Spanish flu peaked in the summer months. That is my understanding, yeah. I had no... See? That's why we've got Olivia. Big it up for you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, learning so much. We've got two brains here with me in the studio, even if it is via Skype. 0439757555. We've got a question here via text from Beth who said, some people have told me that a lot of people my age, early 20s, are asymptomatic. I work at a hotel. Is there anything to look out for that could suggest I'm a carrier or infected? Really good question, Beth. Look, it's definitely true that asymptomatic transmission with coronavirus is possible. We don't know yet whether it's a major spread of the virus, but we do know that you can kind of be spreading the virus about 
48 to 20, 24 to 48 hours before you might actually show any symptoms. In terms of trying to look out for things, I mean, this is the issue. If you're asymptomatic, you're not showing any symptoms. So it's pretty hard to look out for things. Um, the key symptoms of it, if they start to develop, are things like a fever and a dry cough. Um, you might get some body aches and pains. But yeah, I think the fever is probably the one you're most looking out for. Dr. Carl? I'm kind of thinking that when we get around to a 15-minute blood test, that that will answer so many of these questions. You stab yourself in the finger, are you carrying antibodies, are you infective, we'll have the answer. We need those tests, bring in the science, and that will save lives. Definitely. We've got a couple more texts here as well. Mark on the Central Coast wants to know, with the lack of aircraft and vehicles worldwide, will there be an improvement in the greenhouse gas emissions and will the earth heal itself quicker? Um... We had the uh, volcano called E15 in Iceland, and having gone to Iceland, I can now give you my proper pronunciation of it. Anyway, that volcano was, wait for it, the first carbon negative volcano in the history of the planet. Because sure, it put out a bit of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it interfered with the air traffic over Europe so much that overall, there was less carbon dioxide put into the atmosphere. So an accidental uh, side effect will be that there will be less carbon dioxide over these next few months put into the atmosphere and we'll see further down the line. Dr. Carl is answering your science questions. Olivia, you had a point to make there. I was just going to add, I think if you haven't, I'm sure lots of people have seen it, but in terms of silver linings around climate change and the coronavirus, if you haven't seen the images of the Venice canals clearing yes. up and not being so dirty anymore as one of the kind of side effects or consequences of people in Venice staying indoors, it's a pretty heartwarming, nice thing to see in an otherwise um, pretty bad news month slash year. Absolutely. <laughs> They're so clear. We've got Eliza now. She's eight. She's from Pottsville Beach. Eliza, how you doing? Good. Are you being homeschooled at the moment? Yes. Yeah. What's your question for Dr. Carl and Dr. Olivia? Um, why do we have to have our eggs meat cooked all the way through? Why do we have to have our food cooked to high temperatures? Is that it? Yes. And what temperature is needed to kill the coronavirus? Don't know. I don't have that information yet. Um, you mean, if you're talking about cooking food, there are some foods you, you can have raw and still get nutrition, like apples and carrots. Potatoes, you get nothing unless you cook them. Uh, getting rid of diseases in them, it's a range. I'm, I'm outside my range of expertise, Dr Olivia. Have you read anything yeah, on that? Yeah, look, I'm not too sure. I think that the risk of transmission of the virus through cooked food my guess would be it's probably pretty low, Eliza, but it's a really good question. The other thing you, you probably want to think about more with food and the spread of the virus is whether the virus is, we know that it can stick on surfaces, so it might be on fresh food at the supermarket, for example, if people have touched apples or oranges or plums or whatever it might be. Again, the risk there is pretty low, but you certainly want to make sure you're washing your things like fresh fruit and vegetable really thoroughly. You can even wash them with a bit of soap if you like. Um, so that might be a way that the virus could spread. But in terms of cooked food, I, I would say it's pretty low. But, you know, there are all the things normally apply when you're cooking things like meat and eggs to make sure they're cooked to a particular temperature to avoid other, you know, to get sick other ways. I'm glad you mentioned the fruit and vegetable washing because we have had a bunch of questions come through about how to wash them correctly. So you reckon just... With a bit of soap is okay? A bit of soap is absolutely fine. That's how I've been washing my apples. It's probably being extra cautious. Like, you, you're probably okay just to wash them with water, but if you want to do it with soap too, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. 
Oh, however, I should point out that uh, there is a slight disadvantage. I used um, the Glen 20 to spray a cup and then washed it clean and washed it clean and washed it clean and had some tea and I still tasted the Glen 20. Oh. However, I then tried washing the cup with metho and I didn't taste anything at all. There you are. That, that's a personal experience, <laughs> sample size of one. <laughs> And we are in the middle of the Science Hour with Dr. Carl. And we do have Olivia Willis as well, who is a health reporter for ABC Science. Jumping back in, let's go to Jack in Port Macquarie. Jack, what have you got for us? Uh, G'day, doctors. I was just wondering, is anyone immune to the virus? Very good question. Because SARS-CoV-2 is a new virus, it means that no one actually has any immunity to it when they're first exposed to it, like they would with some other viruses. In terms of the question around whether once you get coronavirus, if you get it and then you recover, are you immune to it going forward? And how long does your immunity last? That is really unclear still. So we don't know yet if people have lasting immunity. There were some reports earlier this year of people contracting it twice or seemingly contracting it twice, but it seems that that's unlikely to be true and more the result of the, the patient was actually when they were shown to be clear of the virus it actually was the case they weren't clear so they had the virus the whole way through and weren't actually reinfected. Um, there's interesting questions too around antibodies and what happens if you have a very mild case of coronavirus and if your body is able to produce enough antibodies to then prompt that immune response. Um, so that's unclear at the moment as well but in terms of that first immunity no no, no one's immune. We have also gotten a text here from someone saying, I'd like to know the risk of checkout assistance at supermarkets to COVID-19, given how many customers they're exposed to. Would COVID-19 survive on paper receipts? If so, should we no longer be using paper receipts since they're handed from the shop assistant to the customer? Dr. Carl. The closest to paper we've got is cardboard and it seems to survive on cardboard for about 24 hours. So, okay, let's just run through the worst possible scenario. The person has COVID, has the, the virus in their body, has touched their face and they put it onto the paper receipt. You pick up that paper receipt and then that you take that paper receipt home with you in your wallet. You then take it out of the wallet and stick it in a book with sticky tape or whatever you do with it and then you wash your hands. And the virus is on the paper receipt and it will die after 24 hours. Your hands are clear. So now you can go into your house and be a good person again and not infect them. If, however, you rub the paper receipt all over your shirt and your forearm, then you're going to you know, spread the virus around there. Bearing in mind, we think, uh, and I'd appreciate if you got anything on this, Dr Olivia, that the infective dose is a, over, over 100,000 particles. Now, I think I mentioned this last week. I'll just rub it in again. Norovirus needs 20 particles. In New Jersey, you've got a wedding, there's 300 people, there's a whole bunch of tables, somebody vomits in one corner with a norovirus, they sweep it up straight away, practically everybody in the room gets infected, including somebody on the far side of the room. 20 particles is really nasty. 100,000 particles, mate, you get 50 particles, you're not going to get infected. So that's what we've seen we're dealing with here, something that is not as infective as the norovirus. So we've just got to all learn about it and then adjust our behaviour to fit in with it. Get a paper receipt, I don't know, carry a plastic bag with you if you don't want to put it in your wallet, just drop it in there and stick it in where the receipts are, let it die after 24 hours, wash your hands, you're cool, man. Mm. Absolutely, wash your hands is the takeaway at the moment. Let's go to Dave in Sydney. Dave, what's your question this morning? Hey, doctors. My question is around uh, antibodies that people produce to cure themselves or rid themselves of the virus. So if somebody has 
uh, produced antibodies and, and help themselves recover from the virus, can we synthesize those same um, antibodies from that person and then inject them into another person as a cure? Okay, so antibodies are a chemical made by the immune system. They look physically like the letter Y. Why? The open parts of the Y actually grab onto the bad guy, whether it's a virus or bacterium. And if it's a perfect fit, then the tail lights up and then along come other cells called macrophages which destroy them. So that's what antibodies are. They're a chemical that go out, they're being made all the time, and they're made as a result of you having been exposed to those bad things in the past, hopefully through a vaccine. Now, there's IgMs, which when you're exposed to something for the first time, immunoglobulin Ms, they come out within hours and they go away. Bummer. And then there's immunoglobulin Gs, IgGs. Now, they are there for a long time, but the trouble is they take two weeks to swing into action. And you could be dead in two weeks, as happened to 100 kids in Samoa who got measles. So what we've been doing, while we don't have a vaccine yet, is that there was, I read this article in, in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, which, by the way, look it up if you want to learn. This is the time to learn stuff. Um, it's all free, not behind a paywall. And they got a very small sample size of people who had been infected with the virus and no longer had it and then got their blood and then got the immunoglobulins and they injected it into a small sample of people and they think it worked, maybe. There you are. It definitely maybe worked on a small sample size, possibly. So we're heading down that pathway that you so wisely pointed out. Let's go to Martina in the Mornington Peninsula. You've got a question about hand sanitizer. Martina, what's up? Oh, hi, doctors. I just wanted to know if a hand sanitizer doesn't work like soap does and break down the germs or pull them apart, then is there any use for hand sanitizer or is it more like a placebo? <laughs> It is definitely not a placebo, but you're right in that soap is, is probably, soap and water is the best thing that you can use. So the reason that we recommend soap is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's the one that causes COVID-19, it's what's known as an envelope virus, which basically means that it's kind of, coronavirus particles are surrounded by this kind of fatty outer layer. They're made up of these things called lipid molecules, which creates this kind of envelope, and that falls apart on contact with soap. And so you're kind of basically washing away the virus when you washing your hands. Now, if you don't have soap and water, hand sanitizer is the next best bet, but it needs to be, I think it's 60, at least 60% alcohol in order to actually kill the virus. That's really important. So oh. it's not, if it's not 60% alcohol, it's not going to work. Um, but soap and water, option number one, option two, 60% hand sanitizer, alcohol-based hand sanitizer. I didn't know that there was a percentage that you should read into. Yes, that's yeah. really important. Yep. Okay, all right. So hand sanitizer, 60%. Nick in Bathurst, you've got another question regarding immunity. What have you, yeah, what have doctors, you got for the you doctors? Good. Um, yeah, my question is, once you've had uh, COVID-19, can we, do you build an actual immunity to it? Um, and the second part is, the earlier reports of people getting reinfected, was that the exact same strain or a different strain? Really good question. So we at this point, we don't, it is still not clear whether people will have lasting immunity once they've been exposed to the coronavirus or if they can get infected a second time. As you mentioned, there were some reports of people getting, you know, having it and then getting infected again. But I think the consensus around that now is that it may have been that actually those people had the virus the whole time, but they had a kind of, the test indicated they didn't when they, when they still did. So it wasn't a case of reinfection. It was just that they'd had the virus kind of 
consistently. Um, questions around immunity, there's a, there's work being done in that, but I, I guess the point is we it hasn't been around long enough for us to know what the immunity is and how long it's going to last. Dr Carl, do you have anything to add there? Yes, let me introduce to the Australian public two words that they probably haven't heard before to put together, false positive and false negative. And any time you do statistics, you learn about this. Let's just stick with the first pair, false and negative. So that means that you've tested negative when in fact you're not. So let's assume we've got 100 people and these 100 people have all definitely got SARS-CoV-2. They've definitely got SARS-CoV-2 and some of them will, depending on the test, falsely come back as they don't have it. Now let's just run through the numbers and the numbers are terrible. Tell me if I'm wrong here. I think I'm, I'm right. 97, 93, 66, 33. Okay, let's start with the first one. Everybody's got um, SARS-CoV-2 floating in their bloodstream. So all of them, you get them and then you shove a whole lot of water into their lungs. This is really distressing and can kill you. Then you shake them around vigorously and then turn them upside down and take the water out and you test the water. Hey, only 3% false negative. But it's a very distressing test and you normally do it with a bronchoscope. You can't just do it to anybody as they're walking down the street. You might kill them, right? Yeah. So, but that's a really good test. Next one, 93%. If somebody has the virus and they're symptomatic and they're coughing up sputum and luckily this little yellow oyster lands on your hand, if you get that and test it, you've got a 93%. Even though really, it definitely has it, only 93% of the time will it say they've got it. Okay, next one. You stick a cotton bud up their nose. Only two-thirds of the time does it come back positive. So one-third of the time it'll say, you don't have the virus when they do. And then the weakest one of all is sticking a cotton bud on the back of their throat. One-third. So 33 people will say, oh, you've got the virus. And the other 67, you say, you haven't got it. The test is wrong. It's got a false negative. All things made by humans have mistakes. Whenever the Amish make a prayer rug, whenever the Muslims make a, a, a prayer rug, uh, sorry, the Amish make a quilt, the Muslims make a prayer rug, whenever they do that, they deliberately put in a mistake to show that only the supreme being is perfect. Mm. Anything made by humans is not. So our tests definitely have false negatives. We've got bad tests at the moment. We'll have better ones soon. And I think, fill me on on this one, Olivia, I do think that there's some sort of 15-minute test coming out of England? Have you heard about that one? Which you, do you know anything about its yeah, false positives? Or? I think that's right. They are trying to fast-track a, a quick turnaround test. Like, I'm not sure if it's a 15-minute one or an hour one, but there is something in the works on that. The other thing I was just going to add, because there's obviously, there seems to be a lot of interest in immunity around this, is that we know, thanks to some Australian research, actually, that the way that the body responds to coronavirus in kind of mild to moderate cases is the seemingly the same way we respond to the flu. So it prompts a similar kind of immune reaction. So there's some, I think, some researchers at the Peter Doherty Institute in Melbourne, they, they basically looked blood samples from one of Australia's first patients diagnosed with COVID-19 and they found that the immune cells that emerged in the blood before the patient recovered were the same ones that we see in people before they recover from the flu. So that suggests in terms of immunity that there might be a similar process going on there in that kind of mild, moderate space. We've gotten a text from Jack in Berwick saying, I would like to know Dr Carl's thoughts on the conspiracy theory that 5G is causing COVID-19. Is there any evidence on this theory, Dr. Carl? Zero. Look, um, I am, for better or worse, a magnet for conspiracy theories. And in fact, I have been blamed, for uh, accused of being in the pay of Big Globe. You know Big Globe? 
They're the people who make money selling globes around the world and apparently they're paying me off big to cover up the truth that the earth is in fact flat. So I'm getting a big check apparently from big globe manufacturers every week, you know, to keep on telling the lie that the earth is flat. So the lie, this, this one... It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, so this one started off saying, oh, um, they've got 5G on the ships. No, they don't. And the uh, ships, um, the thing came out of Wuhan where they've got 5G. Yeah, sure, lots of places in the world have got 5G. And they're saying that there's a part of this manufactured virus. No, we're very confident it's not manufactured. There's a part of this manufactured virus that will interact with 5G via the kundalinis and the chakras and activate only your body. So as you walk past the 5G tower, say, wow, that's Lucy Smith. Quickly, let's activate the virus in her body and then the 5G tower will kill you by activating the virus in, in your body. Complete crackpot stuff. So stop sending in the 5G questions. You got your answer. It's got nothing to do with coronavirus. Let's go to Lynn in South Gippsland. Lynn, what is your question this morning for Dr. Carl and Olivia? Well, my question is, does he think there are a lot of other cases out in the community? Because a lot of people at the very beginning weren't eligible to be tested uh, my son being amongst them, he's in his early 20s, had all the symptoms, was very, very sick, um, has recovered. But, you know, I think, well, maybe there are a lot of people out there who have had it or have got it. And, you know, we're only getting statistics of the tested cases. Mm. Then you've put your finger right on it. We have not been doing enough testing uh, and this is a simple case of where the mathematicians can kick in, look at how many people we have tested and then from then extrapolate to the bigger society. But you're 100% correct. There are many people who have not been tested, who should have been tested. Basically, everybody should be tested with a test that has zero false positives and zero false negatives and we don't have that test yet in Australia and we're heading towards it. But you're dead right. You mentioned the vaccine that's been worked on, Dr. Carl, and Lana from Newey, you've got a question about this. Very interesting. What's up? Hey, doctors. Hi. Lay on us, Dr. Lani. So, yeah, what happens, like, what's the worst case scenario if we rush a vaccine or rush a treatment? Um, well, you can have people die from the vaccine. Everything made by humans is not perfect. And so there have been cases of vaccines which um, have been bad and have been tested found to be bad and then withdrawn. In the case of the AIDS vaccine that they've been working on for three years, they've just found out that it doesn't work, so there's no point in having it. So you've actually got to make the vaccine and then actually see if it works, not just on the laboratory bench against some virus particles, but actually in a living human being of a wide range, ranging from short to tall, young to old, male, female, pregnant, not all those things. So we've got to go down that pathway. So that'll work long term, but shorter term, what we want is a drug. Now, it turns out there's a weak spot on this guy, the SARS-CoV-2, called the spike protein. Look it up on Wikipedia. And for the uh, virus to actually work, it's got to get into your cells. And to do that, the spike protein has to change shape. And the people in Queensland University have come up with a, what they call a molecular clamp, which is a drug, which hangs onto the spike and won't let it change shape. So you can have all the virus particles in the world floating in your bloodstream, but they can't get into your cells. So the drug will protect you. Have we invented the drug? No. Should we put money into it? Yes. So these are just some of the scenarios we're working on. And it's only been around for about three or four months now. So we're mm. doing well. 
In terms of also with the with the question about safety, the vaccines are slightly different, but safety in humans with drugs, it's one of the reasons that at the moment researchers are looking at rather than coming up with new drugs or compounds from scratch, which, as we know, can take a very long time to develop and to test, we're looking at ways to repurpose drugs that have already been approved for other diseases and are already known to be largely safe. And so I think it was last week or just the week before, the World Health Organization launched really an enormous global trial looking at four of the most promising drug treatments that we've got. So there's a ton of them, but they've, they're focused on four. Um, one of those is a, is a drug combo that's already used against HIV. HIV. Another is a malaria treatment. And then there's another one that's a new antiviral, which was actually designed originally for Ebola. So the safety stuff around drugs is a little bit um, easier in that sense if we're, if we're looking at drugs that have already been improved. And then here's another word, wise word from the past from 500 years ago from Paracelsus, who said, all drugs are poisons, comma, what matters is the dose. So sure, in some cases, it does seem that the anti-malarial compound can reduce the severity of the symptoms, but somebody died of it. So you've got to juggle these things. It's not as though you just sort of get a memory stick and you chuck it into your computer, it works. This whole This is a lot more complicated because humans are complicated. There's a lot of issues to look at. And I think, you know, a common theme throughout these questions and what you've said, Olivia, is that this virus is so young. Like, it's it's really young. We haven't even been able to, I guess, think about the impact on pregnant women because it hasn't been around for nine months, right? Yeah, totally. There's still a lot of questions around pregnancy and, and childbirth, which I think um, Dr Carl spoke about last week. At mm. this point, it looks like pregnant women or infants aren't particularly at higher risk like they might be, for example, with a seasonal flu. But because it's only emerged in December, my understanding is we don't know kind of long term on pregnancy what the impact might be because we haven't really seen it yet of someone in the late stages of pregnancy who might have contracted coronavirus much earlier. Jay in Melbourne, you've got a bit of a question off the back of that vaccine one. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was curious, are you still contagious after getting a vaccine for something? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on what the vaccine is made of. So let's just run through the options. So with regard to, well, forget bacteria, just go for viruses. So firstly, they talk about using a killed or attenuated virus. Well, attenuated means that it's diluted, so that there's not as, enough particles to actually make you sick, just enough to tickle your immune system into action, but not kill you. Killed? How can you kill something that's not alive? So what they mean is that they've modified it so it doesn't work anymore. For example, like getting rid of the fatty coating or envelope so it can't use that to get into your cells. Under those circumstances, if you use an attenuated virus and the laboratory doesn't do their work properly, and this has happened because nothing made by humans is perfect, you can end up with people getting the vaccine and then infecting others. And then the third option for a vaccine is besides the killed or attenuated, is to go into something deep inside, like a bit of the DNA or the RNA, because this is an RNA virus, and use that as your trigger, but only a small section of it. So if the whole thing is 30,000 base pairs long, you use maybe 200, and then that can't infect you. As far as the research that you've done, Olivia and Dr. Carl, and I guess what you've been reading and where we're at at this stage with coronavirus, what's the one thing you'd want people to take away this week as far as, you know, their learnings and, and you know, how to approach this time? Mm. 
Look, I think obviously washing your hands, keeping your distance, both really key. One thing we haven't spoken about that I think is really important in this time is that people look after their mental health. We're all in a very weird kind of unprecedented time in our lives and our and our daily routines have really shifted and a lot of us are not able to see friends and family and things have been cancelled and so on and that is going to naturally cause a bit of anxiety and stress and maybe even some grief as well and so it's really important that people are gentle with themselves and with each other and if you're at home you know try and reach out to other people virtually keep those social connections going um, exercise is really important maintaining healthy diets all that kind of stuff is key um, and don't, a lot of people have been speaking about how they're going to use this time to master a new skill or learn a language or something amazing. Good on those people. But if you're not up to that and you just feel like watching Netflix and doing nothing, that's also absolutely fine if that's what you need. Yeah. Dr. Carl? Uh such a beautiful answer all I can do is fill in a few gaps yes my brother-in-law who's moved in is now learning to play the Spanish guitar with the teacher over the internet that's number one and number two keep fit you'll know you're doing well when you're doing your exercise you're eating well you're having lots of vegetables and when you're waking up in the morning well rested and by the way do a bit of pumping iron that will help your immune system become nicely tuned take care of yourself Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl and a big thank you to Olivia Willis for joining us. If you want to read up on more of her articles, head to ABC News. And to stay in the loop of all things COVID-19, please like and subscribe to this podcast. I'll catch you next week. Wash your hands.